open chapter 8, we'll figure out how it goes. Uh, the thing is, it is, when we read the Bible, it is important to understand what are we reading and how do we read it. Because this particular passage, these six verses that we just read from the lectern, that I read from the lectern and you heard me reading them from the lectern, uh, we can read at, let's say, psychological angle, you know, from psychological point of view. As a consultant, you know, as, as people who talk to each other, who try to help different people, we might see a great hint here. For example, if husband and wife comes to a consultation and she or he, it doesn't matter who, both do, you know, uh, say, you always do this, or you never did this, or I, I've never done that, okay? Okay? These kind of statements are never right. They are always wrong. Because maybe the majority of the time he or she did or did not, but that's what it is. And here in chapter 8, verse 32, excuse me, verse 33, Jews who have heard Jesus said, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. So unless they have no clue of their previous history and they have no idea what Exodus is all about, since Exodus was the exodus of slaves from Egypt, Israelite slaves, Jewish slaves, or maybe there is something else. So that's one way to read the Bible, to look for some kind of psychological clues. Or we could have gone into sociology or, let's say, religious studies and read it as, a, as almost a battle between Jesus' statements on one hand and the religious views of those guys who were surrounding him at this particular time. Our passage starts with a very, I would say, comforting idea. Jesus addressed those Jews who believed in him. So if you have ever heard that Jews do not believe in Jesus, that's wrong. That's big time wrong. I mean, big time. We have them in the Bible, those Jews who believed in Jesus. But if you would go home and do a small homework and read this chapter to the very, very end, by the end of the chapter, these very guys would pick up stones. And in the good old days, when you pick up stone, you do not plan to build a house or a temple or anything. You pick up stone usually for one simple purpose, to stone somebody. And they were ready to stone Jesus. Those who, few minutes ago, claimed that they believed in him as the Messiah. That might be another approach to read this particular passage. Maybe very interesting. But we will read it from a little bit different perspective. We need to know that all of this happens in the temple. And we know it happens in the temple because it's in the Bible. He was walking in the temple. He was first talking to Pharisees. He had a small conversation with them. Then 
Jews approached him. Okay, small kind of like a mar margin thought, you know, thought on the side. Who are Jews in the Gospel of John? It is not Jewish population of Israel at those days. It is not necessarily those who would be very devoted to the temple and live in Jerusalem only because we meet them across the country. It's those guys, kind of like a small political party, uh, who would try to find the balance between Judean dependency from Rome and independency from Rome. So they would try to maintain Judea as independent and as possible from Rome, from occupation, yet not trying to make any revolts or riots to get under, from under of this umbrella, okay? So it's a political party. So these guys had their own ideas, have had their own interests, and one of the main interests was to have a king and on one hand, but be in peace with the Roman power. Some of them surprisingly believed that Jesus is the Messiah. So he should be their leader. And now he tells them a statement. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that's a great lesson to us, to all of us. Because what happens afterward is they did not got into the main theme to be abiding with him, to abide in the word, to be his disciples. Something else triggers their attention, and they immediately react to that. What triggered their attention? The truth will set you free. So we are not free? How come? We thought we are. We did everything. Our party leaders proclaimed that we are free. And they go into this discussion, but look how Jesus responds. He doesn't really follow into this speed. He doesn't really go further into disputing this statement. What he says is, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Yet slave does not remain. And it's unfortunate that ESV takes this word as a remain in the house forever because it's the same word as abide. In Greek, those words are same rooted. You know, so the, the uh, slave does not abide in the house forever, but son abides forever. So his main idea is to bring these people into an understanding that they need to be at home at the house of his father. And where's his father's house? It's the temple. Where are they? In the temple. So if they are in the temple, they need to be devoted not to political conversation, not to set uh, the challenges of their own day. They need to devote themselves to relationship with the Lord through the word. This same abiding word that we just actually sang about. If you will go back one step back and remind yourself the fourth beginning of the fourth stanza of the hymn that we just sing. God's word forever shall abide. No thanks to for who uh, uh, 
who fears it. For God himself fights on our side with weapons of the spirit. Okay? So how come they are in the temple and they need to uh, abide in the ward? And with this, they would be able to answer the challenges of their day. But the thing is, when you try to think that your state is a kind of eternal state, it was yesterday, it is today, and hopefully it will be tomorrow, there is a chance that you got into a mistake. Because the time always changing things. God changes things. Jews never, I mean, scratch it, Jews not always had the temple. If you go into history back, if you read Bible from the very beginning, when we have Abraham, as they claim to be a seed of Abraham, Abraham did not have a temple. He did not even have a tabernacle. How did he worship? He would go from place to place and erect altars, and he would sacrifice on altars at oases. So you would have altar, tree, most likely a river or a well next to it, and that's where you would worship. And then he would go to another place and set another altar, and that's how he would basically mark the territory and devote this territory to the Lord God Most High. Then they ended up in Egypt, and before they uh, entered back into the land, God provided them with a great idea. Instead of having multiple places to worship, you can have one central place, but it would be a portable place for meeting with divine. It's called tabernacle. But in this tabernacle, you still will have altar, source of water, and you will have poles or kind of like a tree-like thing that would give you an idea that you are kind of like in the garden. So from many places, it developed into one place, but it's still portable place. Interestingly enough, that about 500 years passed by, and uh, that system stopped to work. They had to reform it again. And that's why the sermon is called, okay, it's a funny Latin phrase, Ecclesia Semper Reformanda, means church always reforming. So they reformed from many places into one but portable and about 500 years after that they transformed their place of worship into the temple. Under King David and Solomon they built the temple. It was one permanent place with basically same features. You still have an altar you still have a source of water. You have engraved palm trees on the side of the building. And you are again in this kind of garden-like area worshiping God. And people from other nations would start to come to this temple and see the beauty of the temple and start to worship the God of Israel. Something went wrong. And God had to tear this temple down and they ended up in exile. After they came back from an exile, they erected a different temple. And by the time of Jesus, the temple that was raised by Herod was a great thing, really great thing on earth. 
depending on the archaeological sources that you're looking for, the temple area was roughly somewhere between 12 or 20 hectares territory. That was temple complex. That's where Jesus met with Pharisee, with his disciples, with believing Jews, and that's where he told them about abiding in the word and therefore being in the house of the Father. That's where they were ready to either take him as a king almost by force or they were ready to stone him. This is the place they thought he blasphemed when he said this place will be down to the ground in three days, but my body would be raised in three days and you will have eternal temple. And that's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, temple was down to the ground, but the spiritual presence through the church now was starting to spread, as he promised, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. We are far, far away from Jerusalem. But it came even to us. It came to us through Europe, through Asia, through many other means, we ended up here. But while church developed, it had its own struggles and its own challenges. And it had to reform and transform and answer the challenges of those days, like in the days of Martin Luther. That was his challenge. He had a very serious pastoral challenge when his parishioners would start to travel to another diocese and talk to a guy named Tetzel doing what? What was, what was Tetzel doing? Small quiz in the church history. He was selling indulgences. Okay? You could have paid money to make sure that you would save your years in uh, um, kind of heavenly preschool called purgatory. Okay? So you could buy yourself out and, you know, get your purgatory degree faster. Okay? Kind of like a fast track. The point is, even now, today, we have our challenges, don't we? Political, economical, social, I don't know, family issues, many challenges. The question is, how do we answer them? And to answer any challenge, Sometimes we can borrow from the past, but sometimes we cannot because their questions were different. But as we read today the words of our Lord Jesus, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This word that abides forever will help us to answer our challenges, the challenges of our day. We need to know the word to be able to transform it into the language of today and to be able to respond. But not only knowledge, it's not the knowledge, the mental exercise only, it's basically when we go into the word and abide in the word, it transforms our relationship with God. And to transform relationship with God, we have this wonderful paradigm. Because as I told the children, 
The most important thing to restart your relationship with God is starts with what? With forgiveness. If we do not ask, how can we be forgiven? And if we are forgiven, we can learn because our relationships are better. And if we know, we come and he feeds us himself. That's what we have in our liturgy because our liturgy starts with confession of sin. When we ask for forgiveness and we are truly forgiven. And then being forgiven, we are raised with enthusiasm and brought into his presence in the word. And we hear the word and we are transformed by this word. And then we are prepared to be fed. Because no closer relationship can be as when we come to the table of the Lord to take his own body and his own blood. And when we transform, we can go outside of the church and see and meet and answer the challenges of this world. The most important thing that this world needs, we can bring them Christ wherever we transformed guys go. May the Lord help us on our way. Amen.